You're listening to The Herald, normally recorded by volunteers at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently being recorded from homes across Greater Glasgow. Please enjoy this week's articles. The Herald, Monday the 20th of July 2020, News. Former worker for SNP MSP Stuart McMillan loses tribunal involving rumours over constituency office sex acts. This article is by Victoria Weldon. An MSP's case worker who was accused of spreading rumours that her line manager performed sex acts in the office has lost her claim for unfair dismissal and sexual harassment. Philomena Donachie, an employee of SNP politician Stuart McMillan, was said to have told constituents that office manager Matthew Leach stared at the back of her head before going to the bathroom for long periods of time. It was alleged that she insinuated this was because he was aroused by her and went to the toilet to masturbate. Ms Donachie tried to claim the allegation and the way it was dealt with amounted to sexual discrimination and harassment and went on to raise an employment tribunal which also included claims for constructive dismissal and disability discrimination. During the tribunal she claimed she was regularly belittled and undermined in the Greenock office and that the complaint about the salacious rumours horrified her and was the final straw leading to her resignation. However, Employment Judge Lucy Wiseman rejected her claims and found that she resigned because she was facing a disciplinary investigation. In her judgment on the case, Judge Wiseman added that she did not find Ms Donachie to be an entirely credible or reliable witness. The tribunal heard that Ms Donachie began working for Mr McMillan in 2015 after meeting him during the independence referendum. She told how she was very passionate about her job, saying, It wasn't just a parliamentary office. It was Stuart. It was the SNP. It was independence. It was a whole philosophy and way of life for me. However, in April 2016, she suffered a stroke while working late one night and had to take three months off. When she returned, Mr Leach had been appointed as a new office manager and things began to deteriorate from that point. Mr Leach questioned her work ethic and poor timekeeping, but any time he raised issues with her, she complained to Mr McMillan. In March 2019, it was suggested that mediation should take place to try to resolve the issues between the pair. However, shortly after this, Mr Leach emailed Mr McMillan with a formal complaint about Ms Donachie. The judgment stated, The complaint referred to the claimant's attitude towards Mr Leach being poor and being one of disrespect and disdain. Mr Leach then set out the various issues he had had with the claimant, which included timekeeping, working from home, the fact that if Mr Leach tried to address issues with the claimant, she complained to Mr McMillan, the claimant's level of absence and the mediation. Mr Leach concluded by stating that he had learned that the claimant and her friend had been making comments in public that Mr Leach stared at the back of the claimant's head, following which he often goes to the toilet. The insinuation was that Mr Leach had become aroused while staring at the back of the claimant's head and had gone to the toilet to masturbate. Ms Donachie's friend had commented she thought Mr Leach was attracted to the claimant. Mr McMillan appointed an independent consultant to investigate the complaint and wrote to Ms Donachie to inform her of the details. Ms Donachie denied making the comments and said she was horrified that this had been put in writing in the complaint. During the tribunal, her lawyer Brian McLaughlin argued that Mr Leach had made up the complaint, deliberately making it sexual, but Judge Wiseman rejected this. The judge said she could not accept that he had conspired with two others to fabricate a complaint which was embarrassing and potentially damaging to Mr Leach's reputation.
Ms Donachie tendered her resignation on June the 11th. She claimed she chose to do this because of the allegation about the comments and the way it was presented to her by Mr McMillan. However, the tribunal found that she affirmed the contract by continuing to work for the MSP for a further three months. Judge Wiseman added the contact from the independent consultant was what prompted the resignation. She said, we considered the claimant did not want to be interviewed regarding the allegations in Mr Leach's complaint. The investigation was being carried out by an independent consultant and the claimant did not have the opportunity to turn to Mr McMillan as she had done in the past. We concluded these factors were the cause of the claimant's resignation. Responding to the tribunal's decision, Mr McMillan said, I am pleased and relieved that the tribunal is over. This has been an extremely difficult time for my staff and myself and we can now put this matter behind us. The tribunal dismissed and could not find evidence to support any of the claims made by Ms Dornicky. The matter is now behind me and my staff and I can focus all our efforts on my constituents in Greenock and Inverclyde. I wish Ms Dornicky well for the future. This article is by Victoria Weldon. You are listening to The Health Scotland, recorded on Monday the 20th of July 2020. Notes from Africa. Coffee is the true measure of civilization. An article by Dr David Bost, who studied medicine at Glasgow University, and is currently working at a hospital in Swaziland. He and his family live on a small farm in northern Uganda near the Albert Nile. Coffee was not on my radar growing up in Scotland. True, there was a watery grey tepid fluid on offer at the men's union between university lectures and on British rail trains. It was available countrywide. Every hospital I worked in during the 1960s and the 70s produced an identical liquid. The only glimpse of sunlit uplands that awaited was on a school out into Paris, when the deep bowls of milky chicory coffee served at breakfast in our pension, with warm croissant and the whiff of coarse gitane cigarettes, made me a francophile for life. Two decades later, on a brief visit from Africa, I found civilization had reached Abbotsinch. There it was, a Costa coffee bar. After two cups of unexpected but very acceptable espresso, I felt I shouldn't push my luck further and considered doing a U-turn back to Nairobi. Which brings us to Kenyan coffee, one of my favourites. There was a small ramshackle but wonderfully hospitable hotel in a Nairobi suburb called the Hurlingham, pronounced Hulligum by taxi drivers, which we used as a base for climbing safaris in East Africa. Each morning in the sunlit dining room with its creaking yellow wood floor, one or other of the two elderly Luo waiters would, if they were in a good mood, serve up a pot of this rich, distinctive brew. If they were not, we would draw lots as to who would approach the closed kitchen door, knock gently, excuse themselves for interrupting and then plead for mercy. Ugandan coffee is milder. During Idi Amin's reign of terror in the 1970s, and Zambia Hospital in Kampala was one of only two hospitals in the country that kept its doors open day and night. 
the latter shift being somewhat fraught for the doctor on call. Which is when Sister Margaret Mary and Coffee came to the rescue. A tall, stern, phlegmatic Franciscan nun, she seemed to be permanently on night duty, knew every patient and nurse, and was unflappable, whether it was a hemorrhaging pregnant woman or a gang of armed drunk soldiers. The phone would ring in theatre, and that familiar gruff voice would ask, Have you finished operating on that man yet? Yes? Well, now, I'm just making a cup of coffee if you're interested, and I see Sister Alby has also made some ginger biscuits, so it could be worse. Sure, and it could. At the southern end of the continent, the Africana farmers still drink an interesting homemade brew of roughly ground beans, chicory, and unidentifiable debris, which can block a sink. The taste is not unpleasant, but certainly improved with a tot or two of the boar peach brandy. I've never been an espresso enthusiast, partly because there is always a feeling that you haven't had your money's worth, even if somebody else is paying for it. My favourites are the Ethiopian varieties. January 2017 found four of us sitting on sacks of cassava and sorghum in a small wholesaler's store just off Namuli's main street, not far from the Nile. The brutal civil war in southern Sudan was six months old. Thousands of women, men and children had been shot, butchered, raped or had starved to death in the bush. Outside the store, a group of young men, some in camouflage uniforms, all bearing Kalashnikov rifles, were shouting and posturing. They were known as tigers and took their orders from the southern Sudan's army leaders. We ignored them, our attention being elsewhere. Berhani's wife was preparing a traditional Ethiopian coffee on a portable charcoal stove a thrice-daily ritual that kept her family and several neighbours like ourselves sane in bad times. Her husband had served in the Eritrean army and was a spare, grim-faced and very tough customer, but he always smiled at the sight of the small, thick china cups being carefully warmed, then half-filled from his wife's calabash. Conversation ceased while savouring and sipping began, a matter of some time and accompanied by odd grunts of satisfaction. Then a communal sigh, after which talk resumed while Mrs. Barani added some fresh charcoal in preparation for the final cup. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 20th of July 2020. TV preview, Cursed. A new twist on Arthurian legend, told through the eyes of the Lady of the Lake, by Herald Magazine. Horse riding, sword fighting, stunt work, there were various requirements for playing Nimue in Netflix fantasy series Cursed. But Catherine Langford, 24, excitedly threw herself into three weeks of intense training for the role, while also coming up with her character's dialect. The Australian star, known for another big Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why, also worked with a trainer on the weekends when they had finished filming. They called it prehab, to make sure she didn't get injured. It's all part of telling the story of a true heroine, which was something Langford felt was very timely, and was partly what drew her to the script of Cursed, created by Tom Wheeler and Frank Miller. 
Based in the book of the same name, brackets written by Wheeler and illustrated by Miller, close brackets. The ten-part series is a reimagining of the tale of King Arthur and explores themes such as the obliteration of the natural world, religious zeal and oppression, senseless war and finding the courage to lead in the face of the impossible. The coming-of-age story is told through the eyes of Nimue, a powerful warrior witch who has a mysterious gift and is a young woman who would become the Lady of the Lake. Following the death of her mother, she finds an unexpected partner in Arthur, a humble mercenary in a quest to find Merlin and deliver an ancient sword and also save her people. It's interesting because when you think of the Arthurian legend, you think of Arthur and Merlin and the Knights of the Round Table, but we very seldom dive into the female characters, notes Perthborn Langford, who's also starred in films Love, Simon and Knives Out. Particularly with the Lady of the Lake, who's such an iconic figure within that legend, we know very little to nothing about her. So when I was taking on this role, the first thing I did was to try and research little bits about her. American-Australian actor Devin Terrell, brackets, he was born in California but grew up in Perth, close brackets, takes on the role of Arthur and agrees playing such a legendary character comes with a lot of pressure. I love that kind of pressure because it just means I have to do my research and I work physically and mentally and emotionally with this character and I can find the truth of who they are, says the 27-year-old star, best known for playing a young Barack Obama in the 2016 biographical film Barry. Being a person of colour playing the role is extremely exciting because, growing up, I didn't see myself a lot in fantasy. I wanted to be part of it so much. I love Lord of the Rings, I love Game of Thrones, I love Harry Potter, and I didn't see a lot of myself represented, especially as a lead character. He adds with a smile, if you can believe in a magical sword, you should be able to believe that a person of colour should be able to play this character. I think it's so exciting because this show is going to inspire so many young people of different genders and different colour that are going to say, I am not the other. This is what the world looks like. What was his first reaction when he read the script? Actually, I was helping a friend out with an audition and they happened to be auditioning for this and I told my agent and they got in touch and they said, oh my God, we'd love him to audition, he recalls. It was an amazingly quick process. My first reaction was, I know I can do this. I know I can play this if they take the chance. And it just so happened that in their heads they were like, this is the right person for the role. It's not, we're making a diverse choice. The thing I always worry about diversity is, is it a question of, oh, do we want to make this a diverse show? I just think, in the times we're living now, it shouldn't be that we pat ourselves in the back for being diverse. As for the challenges of the role, amiable Terrell confines, it was a physical, mental and emotional journey the whole way. I think the fear is, am I predicting for the audience too much? Am I showing too much of a leadership role? Am I being too weak in this moment? And I think that was always a challenge, balancing him. Because in moments it's like, when do I give charge to Nimue and when is she allowing me to be the leader? Because this is very much the story of the Lady of the Lake. Langford points out how sometimes girls or women are told that it's masculine to be strong, which isn't true at all. Which is why she felt Nimue was an important character to represent on screen. The story recognises all the obstacles which are specific to women that she has to overcome on her journey, but also shows how she's a strong and capable hero. I think the most important thing with this is showing that she's capable and not undermining her by her falling over for no reason. Which sounds kind of crazy when you just say it like that, but sometimes scripts you read, if there's a girl and a boy, the girl stumbles and the boy has to help her up. Chatty Langford elaborates candidly. I don't remember if there were any moments like that within this script, but if there were, I felt really comfortable to go to Tom and just say, hey, I don't quite understand why she does this. 
and he would go, oh yeah, that makes no sense at all. Just do what makes sense, which is for her to run and not fall over anything. Do you know what I mean? Cursed is available on Netflix. Recorded from the Herald, 20th of July, 2020. SPFL confirmed 2020-2021 Betfred Cup will comprise group stage and five rounds as normal as the announced dates. The SPFL today announced the 2020-2021 Betfred Cup will kick off in October and will comprise a group stage and five rounds in total. There had been speculation that the competition would involve fewer matches and could be scrapped altogether due to the coronavirus pandemic. But the group stage will get underway with five group games, the first of which will be played on Tuesday, October 6th, and will be followed by four knockout rounds. The final will be played at Hamden on February 28th, 2021. The SPFL revealed that all 42 of their affiliated clubs have confirmed that they are willing and able to take part. They will also be liaising with the Highland League and Lowland League about the possibility of their champion clubs from last season, Rora Rangers and Kelty Hearts, participating as well. The group stage will follow the same format as last year, with matches ending in a draw after 90 minutes going straight to a penalty shootout, with the winners earning an extra bonus point in addition to the traditional point given for a draw. The eight group winners and four best runners-up will then progress to the last 16 knockout round. SPFL Chief Executive Neil Doncaster said, Last season's Betfred Cup was a hugely successful competition and we're looking forward to the same combination of excitement and passion this season. The process of scheduling the SPFL's Premier Cup competition has been made much more difficult this year due to the disruption caused by COVID-19. But we are delighted to be in a position to confirm five uninterrupted rounds of fixtures once again. The innovations made to the competition in the last few seasons have proved to be a real winner with clubs and supporters alike. We are extremely grateful to our friends at Premier Sports, Betfred and the Scottish FA for their flexibility in agreeing this season's Betfred Cup schedule. We wish all the clubs the best of luck in their quest to reach next year's final. Betfred Head of Media Mark Pearson said, Season 2020-2021 marks the fifth year of our extremely enjoyable and successful title sponsorship of the Betfred Cup. We are delighted that the dates for the new season are now confirmed and we are looking forward to another thrilling competition. From the competitiveness of the group stage to the drama of the final at Hamden Park, the Betfred Cup never disappoints in delivering memorable moments and we cannot wait to see what the coming season brings. Best of luck to all the teams taking part. Premier Sports Director of Operation Richard Webb said, It is terrific news that, despite all the issues COVID-19 has created within football, the SPFL has been able to replicate the same successful format for this season's Betfred Cup. We are excited to be entering our first season showcasing the biggest games from the two major cup competitions in Scotland and look forward to being the home of Scottish knockout football from this autumn onwards. The draw for the first round group stage fixtures will take place in due course with further details to follow. Confirmed Betfred Cup 2020-2021 dates. Round 1. Match Day 1, Tuesday, October 6th, 2020. Match Day 2, Saturday, October 10th, 2020. Match Day 3, Tuesday, October 13th, 2020. Match Day 4, Tuesday, November 10th, 2020. 
Match Day 5, Saturday, November 14th, 2020. Round 2, Saturday, November 28th and Sunday, November 29th, 2020. Quarter Final. Tuesday, December 15th, Wednesday, December 16th and Thursday, December 17th, 2020. Semi-final, Saturday, January 23rd and Sunday, January 24th, 2021. Final, Sunday, February 28th, 2021. The Herald, Monday the 20th of July 2020, News. Thousands of decade-old masks sent to doctors recalled after disintegrating. This article is by Hannah Roger. Thousands of masks have had to be destroyed by Scottish health boards after they were found to be disintegrating and a health hazard. The masks, which are understood to be more than a decade old, were sent to frontline staff in March. However, the devices were recalled earlier this month after it was found that parts were flaking off into doctors' mouths and noses. The vital supplies had been queried by doctors after they first received them at the start of the pandemic when they found stickers showing expiry dates of 2021 stuck over original expiries of 2016. The Herald understands the masks were part of a UK-wide national PPE stockpile from 2009, making them more than a decade old by the time they were shipped to frontline workers tackling coronavirus. It is also understood that the masks were retested in 2013 and 2014 before the expiry date was extended. Cardinal Health, the mask manufacturers, confirmed that they had not distributed the masks since 2010 and the subsidy Medline had taken over their handling thereafter. Anna Sarwar, Labour MSP for Glasgow, previously questioned the expired masks with Jean Freeman at Holyrood. He said, Doctors have been sent into battle with unsafe equipment and it's scandalous that health workers were put at risk like this. Ministers must urgently step in, stop the spin and get our hero workers the resources they need. The Scottish Government needs to start listening to the evidence from nurses and other health workers. I have raised this twice and was assured the situation had been resolved. That clearly wasn't the case and doctors were right to raise concerns. Miles Briggs, MSP, Scottish Conservatives' health spokesman, said the incident was shambolic and added, Despite a number of assurances given to me and other MSPs by Nicola Sturgeon and Jean Freeman that these masks were safe, we now find out that they were disintegrating and are a health hazard. It's time for full transparency. I have been calling for a proper investigation into SNP ministers' handling of this pandemic and this latest scandal must be fully investigated. Our NHS professionals have gone above and beyond during this pandemic. The very least that they should have expected is for ministers to protect them and make sure PPE was safe. Health Secretary Jean Freeman was asked about the masks originally in March and told MSPs the supplies that have been issued to GPs have been issued according to Health Protection Scotland guidance in terms of the nature of those supplies, the masks, the goggles, aprons and so on. When asked specifically about the out-of-date masks on March the 17th, Ms Freeman said, We are aware of the particular circumstance. We are taking steps with the health boards to ensure resupply and that the situation is not repeated. GPs have been contacted so that they know that this is underway and so that they can be reassured. As I said, my requirement is that all our general practices receive the supplies that they need and that those supplies are fit for purpose. 
It is understood medics were advised the masks were fit for purpose at the time and only discovered the advice had changed when they received an email on June the 2nd telling them to quarantine and dispose of the masks. In one email sent to GPs in one Scottish health board it said we have been informed that masks were issued from UK stock in January 2020 through to early April 2020 and were included in some deliveries to GP practices. Can all GP practices quarantine and dispose of these locally if they have any remaining stock? An alert issued by the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency on June the 26th stated there is a risk to staff wearing the mask if the foam strip on the mask flakes and enters their airways or mouth. There have also been complaints of the ties and or stitching coming away from the mask. A Scottish Government spokeswoman said PPE which has been issued to NHS boards must meet appropriate standards and it will be withdrawn if it does not. The shelf life of these masks was extended in March as they were tested as safe to use. They have more recently failed retesting and in line with normal procedure therefore a UK wide alert was issued on the 26th of June. These masks will not now be used and will be safely disposed of. This article is by Hannah Roger. You are listening to the Health Scotland recorded on Tuesday the 21st of July 2020. Scotland has let down its young people during the Covid-19 crisis. An opinion article by Catriona Stewart. Asked in her interview with Scotland on Sunday whether there would be a positive legacy from the coronavirus crisis, The First Minister's answer was a swift and unequivocal no. We are told that after a pause, Nicola Sturgeon expanded her answer to say that the crisis has shown what really matters in life, listing your health, your family, your friends, your community. If we can hold on to that, she said, and apply some of that learning as we go back to normal, then maybe that's as close to a positive legacy as we can get. I was mulling over that no all day Sunday. It seems in such stark contrast to a vast array of public chatter throughout the pandemic about learning opportunities and possible positive life changes arising from the crisis. A swift reduction in carbon emissions, more active travel and a surge in cycling, more flexible family-friendly work lives with a blend of homeworking and commuting, A resurgence in the local high street as people stay at home more and shop local. A complete rethink of overseas travel with the environment at the forefront of our plans. And etc. Perhaps it feels too crass to be speaking so soon about potential positive legacies when so many are still struggling so badly. Having read through the Children and Young People's Commissioner's Impact Assessment into how the response to COVID-19 has affected young people, the only ray of light seems to be hoping for a positive legacy arising from the crisis. The past week has seen a range of news stories about the devastating impact of the lockdown on children and young people's mental health. And having had an increasing number of conversations with parents anxious about their children's own anxiety, it is a real relief to see the subject being discussed at a political level. 
From children not receiving in a meaningful level of communication from school to parents of only children concerned that their sons and daughters are missing out on vital socialisation and company. There are worries about additional resources needed for young people from engaged and supportive families. We also know that the response to the coronavirus crisis, while aimed very much at keeping people safe and saving lives, has brought existing societal inequality into sharp relief. So for children already vulnerable before the crisis, their situation has worsened further. We know that there have been issues with a lack of consistent Scotland-wide education provision, with gaping differences not only from council area to council area, but from school to school within local authority areas. While local authorities have stepped in to provide vouchers, and in some places teachers have been going door to door to check on pupils, much of the slack has been picked up by the third sector, creating even patchier provision. As well as the Children's Rights Impact Assessment, the Carers Trust Scotland has released research into how young carers have been affected during the crisis. This too makes for grim reading, detailing a steep decline in the mental health and well-being of thousands of young people across Scotland who provide unpaid care at home for family members or friends. Some pull-out statistics to illustrate the issues include 11% of both young and young adult carers reporting an increase of 30 hours or more in the amount of time they spend caring each week, and 6% saying they spend 90 hours a week caring for a relative or friend. Dr Justin Williams, the Vice Chair of the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services Faculty at the Royal College of Psychiatrists in Scotland, has also spoken of how the return to school will affect pupils. With new rules in place, teachers in masks, strict physical distancing between them and adults. For those returning to school, it would be a disconcerting experience of the very familiar and the very unfamiliar colliding. For those starting P1 and S1 for the first time, there will be the double anxiety of a new school and COVID-19. Scotland prides itself on its progressive attitude towards children and young people. Yet Bruce Adamson's impact assessment, believed to be the first of its kind in the world, makes for tough reading. Children and young people have largely been left out of the decision-making processes as the country moves swiftly to lockdown. There should, finds the report, have been ways of making sure young voices were heard during this process on matters that directly affect them. Another alarming finding states it hasn't been possible to track how emergency laws have affected at-risk children because the Scottish Government doesn't collect the relevant data. In response to children's mental health concerns, John Swinney recently said the Government hopes to have a counsellor in every secondary school by the end of the year as one measure to address a looming child mental health crisis. This isn't a new pledge, it's a long-awaited promise. When it appears children have been let down so badly during the crisis, it is difficult to think of positive legacies. One such might be implementing the steps outlined by the Children's Commissioner, particularly creating ways to make young people active participants in decision-making about their lives, 
in a way robust enough that this will not fall by the wayside in any future crisis situation. There are many issues to be dealt with post-pandemic, but making reparations for failing our young people has to be a priority. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Tuesday the 21st of July 2020. Opinion by Andrew McKee If we're going back to work, we should stay home to do it. There are people, I used to be one of them, who quite liked the office. I had caveats. I liked it except for the work, the surroundings, the pettifogging rules, the commute, the management, the expectation that you would be at your desk at unreasonable hours, such as when the pubs were open, the people coming round constantly with idiotic questions, the meetings where nothing ever gets settled, except for the realisation that the folk addicted to ludicrous jargon who never did any work themselves were paid about six times as much as you. Actually, maybe I didn't like it that much. It's now been about ten years since I regularly worked in an office. During that period, however, I've had two or three spells of a few months filling in for other people, which involved traipsing into offices. And what struck me most about the experience was how much more work you get done at home. The past five months or so, I've given quite a lot of other people the chance to test out this theory for themselves, and it's clear that there are a sizable number of them who are in no particular hurry to get back to their cubicle. Cubicles will presumably be making a return in a big way, since the hot desking and open plan offices companies used to be keen on are unworkable in the era of social distancing. Hard and fast numbers are difficult to come by, but there have been a couple of surveys that suggest that there are plenty of workers who are quite happy to keep on social distancing, in the case of some commuters by distances of dozens of miles. How much of this is timidity or worry about disease, and how much a preference for working from home is unclear, but the most recent survey I've seen says that 53% of office workers feel more at ease working remotely, 27% don't feel it's safe to return to the office, and 15% don't want to go back at all. That particular report doesn't say how many people were questioned or anything about its methodology, and was commissioned by a firm that makes office equipment, so I don't think we can draw any very rigorous conclusions except that it's fairly revealing that 81% of respondents would try to avoid greeting or interacting with their colleagues in the office, but only 11% would object to going out with them for a drink afterwards. The potential hazards are nothing to be flippant about though, and the difference for office workers is that, unlike NHS staff and carers, or now that lockdown is being eased, retail and hospitality workers, and others such as hairdressers or chiropodists, those hazards are for the most part entirely avoidable. If you spend your working day, as the majority of office workers do, either on the phone or in front of a computer screen, the chief things you're missing out on by working from home are meetings, which 47% of workers would like to avoid, and sharing tech equipment, which 52% are worried about.
The recent outbreak of the disease at an office in Motherwell is getting even more attention than would otherwise be the case because of the irony that it happens to be involved in contact tracing. But that's not really the salient point. The point is that it's a call centre, which you would imagine must be one of the jobs most easily conducted from home, since all that is really required is a headset and a computer. I'm aware that that is a simplification. There are a number of considerations that have made office life the norm for around 40% of the UK workforce, and that have ensured telecommuting or flexible working haven't caught on to anything like the degree that has been predicted more or less constantly for decades. But now that millions of us have had an enforced and unwelcome experiment in working from home, it may be easier to make a judgement on which of these issues are all that important. One reasonable consideration is security. A lot of call centres and other offices are understandably and correctly concerned about safeguarding their customers' personal details, to the extent of operating paperless environments or banning personal phones from the workplace. The chief vulnerability of data in the digital world, however, is in the networks and servers themselves. And from that point of view, it ought not to make much difference whether any computer that accesses a central database is physically in the same building or not. Another justification advanced for the office is that it's essential to supervise the workforce. Other than providing middle managers with a justification for their own jobs, it's hard to see that there's much to that. All the evidence from the research suggests that people who work from home are significantly more productive. One study conducted last year found that they worked a total of 16.8 days more each year than their office-based colleagues. Unsurprisingly, they also wasted less time in non-work-related conversation, which accounts for more than an hour a day of the average office worker's time. The biggest time waster of all, however, is distraction from management, and home workers get 22% less of that than their office-bound colleagues. Sadly, there will be things like training that mean that we're unlikely to get rid of offices altogether, and it's true that they have some advantages. Unlike much formal training, which is often worthless or idiotic management diktats, casually asking a colleague is often the quickest way to solve a problem, for example. But given the enormous cost benefits for firms themselves, the huge work-life boon for employees, and the environmental games that could be made by making commuting the exception rather than the norm, it seems crazy that we have not seen much more flexible working adopted by UK firms. After the practical experience of several months of it in practice, even if for wholly undesirable reasons, we should be asking whether it makes any sense to go back, and given the economic climate, whether we can afford to. This article was by Andrew McKee. Herald Scotland recorded on Tuesday 20th of July 2020. Album Review. The Hermes Experiment. Here We Are. By Keith Bruce. The Hermes Experiment. Here We Are. Brackets Delphian. Close brackets. 
The performances by adventurous and original chamber quartet, the Hermes Experiment, were a standout of Matthew Whiteside's The Night With, concerts in Glasgow's Hug and Pint, and elsewhere in a season that was full of highlights. This debut album was recorded for Scotland's Dynamic Delphian label in Edinburgh's Greyfriars Kirk over three days in October of last year and it will surely be representing Delphian alongside guitarist Sean Sheba's back set on many best-of lists come the end of this one. There are many startling things about the Hermes experiment, beginning with the group's lineup of soprano voice, clarinet, harp and double bass, which blends so well its singularity ceases to be relevant. Nonetheless, commissioning new music has necessarily been central to the experiment and 10 of the 60 pieces written for them over the past 6 years are included here, alongside examples of the skills of the players themselves in arranging works for their particular combination of instruments. That latter category includes bassist Marianne Schofield's treatment of Anne Meredith's Thin Like a Flower, one of the shorter tracks alongside the two by Emily Hall that give the disc a resting ways to start and finish. Freya Wally Cohen's We Phoenician Sailors, Josephine Stevenson's Monteverde companion piece Between the War and You, and Giles Swain's Chansons Devote et Poissonneus are more substantial and there are fine contributions from the catalogues of Erwin Wallen and Misha Mulov Abado as well. Crucially, however, it all sounds of a piece, and that is down to the collective, with all of her Pashley on clarinets and Anne Denham's harp, in which front woman and vocalist Heloise Werner has no monopoly in exuding an irresistible charm. By Keith Bruce. Recorded from the Herald, 21st of July 2020. Scottish Cup final to be played five days before Christmas as SFA reveal remaining 2019-2020 dates. Aidan Smith. The SFA have confirmed that this year's Scottish Cup final will be played just five days before Christmas. Both semi-final ties between Celtic and Aberdeen and Hearts and Hibs will be played over the weekend of October 31st and November 1st. An SFA statement confirmed the William Hill Scottish Cup final is set to be an historic Christmas cracker after the remaining fixtures for the 2019-2020 competition were approved by the Scottish FA Board. The semi-final fixtures Hearts of Midlothian vs Hibernian and Celtic vs Aberdeen will be played on the weekend of Saturday the 31st of October and Sunday the 1st of November, with dates and kick-offs subject to live broadcast. The final, which was originally scheduled for Saturday 9th of May, will now be played on Sunday 20th of December. All three fixtures will be played at Hampden Park. The Scottish football governing body also revealed that players who have featured for another team in the competition will not be cup-tied. While clubs will now be allowed to make use of five substitutes for the remaining fixtures. Ian Maxwell, Scottish FA Chief Executive, we are pleased to confirm dates for the remaining stages of the 2019-2020 William Hill Scottish Cup. It has always been our intention to play the tournament to a finish and while the impact of COVID-19 has dramatically altered the schedule, we are confident that the final will be a unique and memorable showpiece event during the Christmas holidays. The dates for the final stages of competition will give the semi-finalists the best chance to prepare for such important fixtures. By ensuring no players will be cup-tied, we have also ensured that each club will be able to field their strongest possible teams. The dates also give us the best possible chance of having supporters attend the matches at Hampden. 
The health and well-being of players, staff and supporters are of paramount importance and we will continue to follow the public health guidance from the Scottish Government. The Herald, Tuesday the 21st of July 2020, News. Coronavirus, Sturgeon warns Scots not to drop guard as new Covid cases exceed 20 for third time in four days. This article is by Helen McCardo. Nicola Sturgeon warned that Scots are in danger of dropping our guard after the number of new Covid cases exceeded 20 for the third time in four days. The First Minister said it was more important than ever for everyone to follow rules on hygiene, physical distancing and wearing face masks as indoor gatherings increase. However, she said residents in Lanarkshire need to be extra vigilant after an outbreak at a call centre in the Eurocentral Business Park near Motherwell where at least eight positive cases have been detected. Of the 22 new Covid cases reported today, 14 were identified in Lanarkshire. Ms Sturgeon said some of these were likely to be connected to the outbreak at Cytel call centre. The premises carries out contract tracing for NHS England's coronavirus test and trace scheme. On Monday, the railway tavern, a pub in Motherwell, closed for deep cleaning after a part-time member of staff was linked to the Cytel cluster. Of the remaining cases, four were in Greater Glasgow and Clyde, two in Ayrshire and Arran, one in Fife and one in Lothian. It comes after 21 cases were reported on Saturday and 23 on Sunday, the first time since June the 21st that cases have topped 20. There have been no deaths since July the 16th. Ms Sturgeon said all the new cases were being looked into by public health teams for signs of clusters or patterns, but stressed that despite higher numbers in recent days, the overall level of the virus in the population remains low. It remains our objective to effectively eliminate COVID in Scotland, said the First Minister. She urged Scots to take stock and ask whether their own behaviour recently could have increased the risk of transmission. She said, I think we're all conscious that as life starts to feel a bit more normal than it has for months, there is danger of dropping our guard. I think we should all stop right now and ask ourselves if we have been dropping our guard and if the evidence is there in our own behaviour, we should all resolve to tighten up again. Ms Sturgeon urged the public to wear face coverings in shops and on public transport, to remain two metres apart from others and to regularly wash their hands and disinfect hard surfaces and doors. These things are more important now, not less important, as we are going out more to shops and restaurants as we meet each other more indoors, said Ms Sturgeon. This is a moment for all of us across the country to take stock, to ask ourselves if our behaviour has eased up a little too much in recent days and to resolve to follow all this advice so that we do not see the virus running out of control again. Her comments were echoed by Professor Devi Sridhar, Chair of Global Public Health at Edinburgh University and one of the Scottish Government's scientific advisors on COVID. The academic tweeted that she was slightly worried that complacency is setting in, adding fewer people with masks in shops and cafes, people not keeping distance and crowding inside and forgetting that virus is still around. We can all do our part to keep numbers low and avoid a second wave and second lockdown. It can all go backwards. The reopening of pubs, restaurants and hairdressers last week and nail bars and beauty salons from tomorrow, coupled with recent increases in the number of people from different households allowed to meet up indoors, is seen as particularly risky. Just 0.3% of COVID outbreaks globally have been linked to outdoor transmission.
Meanwhile, Chief Medical Officer Dr Gregor Smith announced that COVID testing will be extended to children under five and infants from tomorrow. That's Wednesday. Until now, under fives were only tested in hospitals where there was a clear clinical need. Child-to-child or child-to-adult transmission is rare worldwide. Statistics for England and Wales show that there has been just one COVID death for every 2.5 million school-aged children, compared to 1 in 51 amongst those aged 90 or older. However, Dr Smith said the move would prevent families having to isolate at home needlessly. He said recent reopenings of early learning and childcare settings, along with the change in physical distance guidance for children under 11, means that our youngest children are now able to mix more. As this happens, and as we approach the autumn and winter months, it will be important to know if a young child's symptoms are caused by COVID-19 or not. We want to avoid households having to isolate for prolonged periods unnecessarily if young children and their family are displaying COVID-like symptoms but do not have COVID-19, as these symptoms can be common in this age group. Ms Sturgeon also confirmed that from tomorrow, statistics on hospital and intensive care admissions will be limited to those patients confirmed to have COVID to give a more accurate picture of the situation. She said the numbers of suspected cases were being distorted by the inclusion of any hospital patients tested for the virus, regardless of symptoms. Over 70s are now routinely tested for COVID on admission and again at four-day intervals. This article is by Helen McArdle. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Wednesday the 22nd of July 2020. Opinion by Brian Beacom, Senior Features Writer When is a mask not a mask? Marks and Spencer Not a space you would assume could become the epicentre of conflict, but yesterday it was, in my head at least. Having entered the doors in Glasgow's Socket Hall Street, my friend and I flowery masked up, like ninjas who'd grown up listening to Scott McKenzie's San Francisco. The expectation of sedate ambience was thrown back in our well-covered faces. Two big women, in their sixties, hard to tell, were browsing in the underwear section, holding up and remarking upon the tiniest briefs this side of a Cindy doll. But the question of incongruity was not the uppermost thought. These women were wearing masks, but only on their chins. What? Had they not heard Professor Jason's scientific advice? Never at any point did he say, this virus doesn't enter through the membrane of the eyes, the nostrils or the open mouth, instead it finds its way into your body via the pores in your chin. My friend had a theory that the women were, in essence, making a protest. By wearing the masks but not really wearing them, they're underlining the ambiguity of the government's obfuscating mask-wearing strategy, she said, smiling. At first we were told masks were only useful for Halloween, bank robbers, adult bedroom games for those who wished to play the role of Tonto, then suddenly they were to be the new socks, to be worn except when in bed or in the shower. It's easy to understand the actions of those two counterculturalists. I suspect she's being a little satirical here. And what I wanted to do was go up to the counterculturalists and say, Excuse me, ladies, but you're sort of missing the point of the masks. 
any chance of sliding them northwards a couple of inches? I don't, however, because right at this point a security guard walked past. I pointed out the miscreant knicker shoppers. He shrugged and offered an empathetic smile. I know, mate, I've been having this problem all morning. I mentioned to a few about the new mask ruling and the abuse I got left my ears bleeding. I've also had the medical history of countless thrown at me. What? You're asking me to wear a mask when my doctor says it could cause me to drop down dead right in front of your blue mask face? Away, you selfish B dot 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 RD. I suggested they perhaps do have medical reasons for non-compliance. They suffer from terminal stupidity. He laughed in agreement. But I felt for the man, most likely earning close to minimum wage, who until now his remit was to keep an eye on those most likely to slip on a pair of new shoes and leave their old ones under the shelving. Now Nicola, by implication, has made him Deputy Sheriff of Covid City. As we chatted, a man strode over to Jumpers. Oh my, he was wearing a mask, but not covering his nose. I looked to my friend and asked, I suppose he's turning his naked nose up at a policy which left Scotland with the third worst death toll per capita in the world, underlining the belief we should all have been wearing masks since March. No, she said, shaking her head, he's just a clown. I want to challenge him too. And looking around, there were six or seven barefaced cheek shoppers. But the experience provokes the bigger question. How involved should we become when others around are non-compliant? Saturday produced the first visit to the favourite West End bar, but the frisson swiftly fizzled out when a group of 10 to 12 young people entered, sat close to us and immediately huddled closer than pre-kick-off Celtic players. They're not all in the same bubble, I said to a friend. There are more bubbles than a bar of aero. I found myself bubbling over with anger. The rules of social distancing were then thrown out the stained glass windows as they milled around and made trips to the bar. What could I do? Tell them to sit further apart? Don't go to the bar? Be careful you, young people. Oh my God, they'll think I'm Bryn from Gavin and Stacey. Yet, all the time I feel that having been denied a coffee in my favourite bar has been largely pointless. We're lost at the moment. Do we settle for being the cowardly lion, afraid of confrontation? Or take a tin man approach, get some oil inside us and go tackle the rampant idiocy? Or sit back and blame Nicola for a frighteningly slow start? This article was by Brian Beacom. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 22nd of July 2020. Books. David Wilson asks who killed Margaret McLaughlin by Herald Magazine. I've worked as a criminologist for some 40 years specialising in violent crime so I'm used to discussing, researching and trying to understand murder in all its various guises. I've talked with hundreds of murderers many hundreds more who are suspected of having committed murder and saddest of all, the families of the victims left behind. Over the years I've come to understand the public's fascination with murder, especially serial murder, and developed stock answers to questions I regularly get asked. 
are people who commit murder born evil? Do you enter the mind of a serial killer? And perhaps most commonly of all, how do you cope? My various coping strategies have been honed over the years, but they were tested to the limit by the murder that is the subject of my new book. The case has engrossed me for the past two years, not least because for the very first time the murder felt personal. I was returning to my hometown in Lanarkshire at the request of my sisters and their friends to look again at a case which has nagged away at them for decades. What I was to discover made me profoundly uncomfortable as a brother, man, Scot and criminologist. In July 1973, a 23-year-old woman called Margaret McLaughlin was murdered as she took a shortcut from her home in Glenburn Terrace, Curlook, through an area known locally as Colonel's Glen, to catch the 8.03pm train into Glasgow. Margaret had recently got engaged to Bob Alexander, although he was working that summer in South Africa. Margaret was going into the city to meet her soon-to-be sister-in-law to make plans for the wedding. She was about to start the rest of her life. The journey from her home to the station should only have taken her a few minutes, but Margaret never emerged from the glen. Her body was found the following morning, and it was obvious she had been subjected to a ferocious attack. She had been stabbed 19 times. In an era before CCTV, mobile phones, a national DNA database or offender profiling, and when forensic science was still in its infancy, it didn't seem that the Lanarkshire Police and their lead detective, William Munsey, Scotland's top detective, would have much to go on. But within the week, they had arrested and charged a 19-year-old local man called George Beattie with Margaret's murder. Yet there was no forensic evidence to connect Beattie to Margaret's death. He appears to have been charged as a result of his special knowledge of the crime scene and a pseudo-confession that he'd been forced to watch Margaret being repeatedly stabbed by men who wore top hats with mirrors on them. The jury took just 35 minutes to find Beattie guilty. All of his subsequent appeals were unsuccessful and as far as anyone official is concerned, the case is now closed. Beattie has served his sentence and been released from prison. In 1973, I was a teenager still living at home with my parents and two of my three sisters, Alison and Margaret. Annie, my third sister, had recently married and was living in another part of the town. Alison and Margaret still live in Curlook. By 1975, I had gone off to university and would make my career in England. I was aware even then that my gender gave me opportunities that was denied to my sisters. Their horizons were fixed at school teaching, nursing or clerical work. Those horizons were also geographically bound by Lanarkshire. Well, just a few years after leaving university, I was living in New York, then Cambridge. This had nothing to do with talent, but was merely a taken-for-granted, seemingly natural process that separated girls from boys and women from men. We would now call all of this prejudice. My sisters and their friends, who all still meet regularly in a cafe in the town, wanted me to look again at Margaret's murder and Beattie's conviction. They are as convinced now as they were in 1973 that Muncie had arrested the wrong man. I was reluctant. What if I come to the same conclusion as Muncie? That would be fine, we trust you, they replied. The implication being they didn't trust the original investigation. Many other women in the town shared their scepticism, while most of the men, including my own father, simply accepted that Muncie and the criminal justice system had convicted the right person. The women were right to be suspicious as it became clear George Beattie had been fitted up for a murder he did not commit. If it was as obvious to me from documents readily available in the public domain that there had been a miscarriage of justice, why had the checks and balances of the Scottish criminal justice system not intervened to set Beattie free? 
Why did everyone simply go along with Lanarkshire Police's flawed investigation that perpetuated a speedy but shoddy conviction and saw an innocent man sent to prison? I avoided these questions at the time. Through social psychology experiments, we've learned much about obedience and deference to authority. We now have a broader understanding of how and why cultures of denial exist, how people can know the truth but simply refuse to acknowledge reality. Lanarkshire police were jokingly known at the time as the Masonic Lodge with truncheons, and Munsey, also a native of Kirluk, was a member of the lodge. So too was my father, and I began to wonder if his acceptance of the police's version of events might have more to do with allegiances formed in the lodge than an understanding of the realities of the case. Of course, if I'm right about Beatty's wrongful conviction, that leaves another obvious question. Who did kill Margaret McLaughlin? As I was not engaged in a formal cold case review, I could not ask the police for the materials that would normally have been made available to me. I could, however, use the techniques I would use if I had been officially called into the investigation. For example, I could walk the crime scene, which I'd never visited before. It soon became obvious why no one had witnessed this murder and how Margaret's killer had disappeared afterwards without being seen. This was a murder that depended on sight lines into the glen and access to the shortcut that her killer would have taken from the back garden of one of the houses that bordered the route. I could even make a few guesses as to where her killer might have come from and returned to. Using the electoral roll, I was able to put names to the men who lived in these houses and one in particular caught my attention. I then made what turned out to be my most important discovery. During one of George Beatty's appeals in the 1990s, Bob Beveridge, a retired detective from the Scottish Crime Squad who had been drafted in to help Lanarkshire Police with their house-to-house inquiries at the time, gave a statement to the Herald in which he stated he had interviewed the strangest person. He was so worried by what this young man said that he wanted him to be formally interviewed under caution. This strange suspect literally jumped off of his sofa when Beveridge entered the house, pulled up his jumper to show the detective marks in his chest, claimed he always carried a knife as he liked to stab cats, and when asked if he had killed Margaret, replied he might have done, but couldn't remember what he did from one day to the next. Beveridge was told to let this man go, however, as Beatty had just been charged with murder. I tracked Beveridge down and interviewed him formally. He couldn't remember this suspect's name or where he'd interviewed him, but he could draw me a map. It corresponded with the houses I had identified when I walked to crime scene, and I knew I could put a name to this strangest person. The final part of my research was to track him down, and the ten minutes I spent on his doorstep was probably the most nerve-jangling of my entire career. When I suggested to him that some of the people in the town thought he had murdered Margaret, he merely replied, I don't know what happened, and closed the door. I cannot prove guilt or innocence, I cannot be judge and a jury, nor do I have access to all that I would have wanted to consider, but I have written my book in the hope that those with formal powers will want to walk in my footsteps and reconsider this case. I truly believe we are on the cusp of finally learning what really happened in the night Margaret McLaughlin was murdered, and if Police Scotland would like me to, I am only too willing to help and make my research available to them. The personal archaeology around this case has reminded me of a number of things, not least my love for my sisters and their friends. I also know that when I return to Kirluk now, I am no longer going back to the Scotland of the 1970s. Above all, I hope the Beatty and McLaughlin families will forgive this further intrusion into their lives, that George gets justice at last, and Margaret's family can take a small measure of comfort in the fact that she has remained in Kirluk's thoughts for nearly half a century. Signs of Murder, A Small Town in Scotland, A Miscarriage of Justice and the Search for the Truth by David Wilson is out now in Sphere, priced £20. By Herald Magazine.
Recorded from the Herald, 22nd of July, 2020. Scottish transfer news as it happened. Celtic bid for Barca's rejected Rangers striker search, Griffith latest. Aidan Smith. From the 22nd of July. 9.54am. Good morning everyone and welcome to today's transfer vlog. We'll bring you the latest news and gossip as soon as we get it. 9.57am. Lennon on Griffith. Neil Lennon has rubbished any rumours that suggested Lee Griffiths may be put out on loan. The Celtic striker is currently training by himself at Lennox Town after returning for pre-season overweight. But Lennon insists he will make an assessment of the Scotland international when he returns from France. On a possible loan move, he said, I'm not even considering that at the minute. He's been coming on, but we'll assess him when we get back. 10.46am. Whitehall can't wait to get started. Danny Whitehall wants to get back on the goal trail after joining Kilmarnock on a six-month deal. The 24-year-old striker becomes Alex Dyer's fourth summer signing following the arrivals of Aaron McGowan, Mitch Pinnock and Zeno Rossi. He told Kilmarnock's official website, I'm very excited to be joining a massive club in a top league and I can't wait to get back to playing games and hopefully scoring goals. The past few weeks have been great and I'm really enjoying being back to the normality of a football environment and training day in, day out with a great bunch of lads. I'm aiming to contribute to the team as much as I can, score goals and push for a place in the starting 11 each week. 11.07am Celtic a jetty interest Celtic are reportedly interested in West Ham striker Albion a jetty. Sky Sports report that Neil Lennon's side have made an approach to the Hammers regarding a possible loan or permanent switch for the Swiss international. Ajeti moved to London from Basel last summer for £8 million and at the point of transfer the Hoops were also keen on his signature. But after being priced out by the Premier League side, Celtic are now looking to reignite their interest. Read more. Celtic interested in West Ham striker Albion Ajeti on loan or permanent deal. 11.23am. Retirement of the Mac. Former Scotland forward Jamie Mackey has retired from football. The 34-year-old was most recently on the books of Oxford and was an unused substitute in the Skybet League One playoff final defeat to Wickham last week. Mackey made over 500 professional appearances for the likes of Wimbledon, MK Dons, Exeter, Plymouth, QPR, Nottingham Forest, Reading and Oxford over the past 17 years. 12.33pm. Lafferty close to deal. Former Rangers striker Kyle Lafferty is close to completing a move to Regina. The 32-year-old has held discussions with the Italian side sporting director Massimo Tabi and is expected to be confirmed today. Talibi said, Talks are very advanced with Lafferty, but not quite done yet. Then we'll look for another name for the attack, for example, Diego Falcinelli. 1.56pm. Frail appointed Dundee United assistant. Northern Ireland national youth coach Stephen Frail has taken up the assistant manager post at Dundee United. Frail had held the post of manager for the Northern Ireland under-17 and under-19 teams for four and a half years. Northern Ireland manager 
Ian Barraclough told the Irish FA, I'm delighted for Stephen to get this opportunity. He has been a real asset for the development of our underage groups and the association as a whole. He joined on my first trip as the under-21s manager to Estonia and was a huge help to me during that period. He has been asset from day one and we wish him every success in this new and exciting role. 2.29pm, Miller to France. Ex-Celtic winger Calvin Miller looks set to join Amiens in France. The youngster departed the hoops after loans at Dundee and Air United, where he played left-back or left-wing. He is now betting on himself in League One and will reportedly sign this week. 3.36pm, Kyle on KT. Ex-Rangers star Kevin Kyle reckons Manchester City should ignore Leicester's Ben Chilwell and make a move for Kieran Tierney. Tierney has been Arsenal's standout in recent weeks with some top performances, including in the FA Cup semi-final win against the Citizens last week. Pep Guardiola's men have been in the market for a left-back and are considering a swoop for Chilwell. However, based on recent showings, Kyle insists KT would be a better option for the Manchester Giants. Read more. Kieran Tierney to Man City. Ex-Ranger star Kyle says Guardiola should ignore Chilwell and sweep for Arsenal star. 4.50pm. Former Rangers ace Andy Halliday reckons Nathan Patterson is ready to step up to be James Tavernier's understudy. The Ibrox outfit released John Flanagan and sold Matt Polster, two of the Jers' first team right-backs, leaving Patterson available. And Halliday is a fan. Read the full story here. 5.26pm. Celtic have had an initial 3.2 million bid for Vasiolis Barkas rejected by AEK Athens. The Hoops need a new goalkeeper after releasing Craig Gordon and Fraser Forster, appearing to reject a move back to Parkhead. They identified Barkas as a potential signing, but their first approach has been rebuffed. 5.26pm. And with that, we're about done for the day. Until next time. The Herald, Tuesday the 21st of July 2020, News. Teachers could be tested as failure to effectively suppress virus could halt schools reopening. This article is by David Ball. Education Secretary John Swinney has indicated that staff and pupils who display COVID-19 symptoms could have quick access to testing as he warned that progress in suppressing the virus will need to continue before schools can fully reopen. Mr Swinney will lay out more details on the Scottish Government's plans to reopen schools in a statement to Holyrood on Thursday, with schools expected to welcome pupils again from August the 11th. The Scottish Government's Education Recovery Group will meet twice this week and again next week ahead of a decision being made on July the 30th as to whether schools can reopen on a full-time basis in three weeks. The Education Secretary said that Scotland is making good progress towards our shared ambition of safely reopening schools. He added, I will make a more detailed statement to Parliament on Thursday, during which I intend to provide clarity on the practical and logistical preparations that we are making for the school reopenings, including on vital health protection measures. 
These measures will include issues such as surveillance programme, outbreak management protocols and quick access to testing for all symptomatic staff and pupils. Through implementing such measures and reopening our schools, we can continue to address the impact of the virus on the health and well-being, educational progress and attainment of our children and young people. But Mr Swinney warned that we will only be able to open the schools if we continue to effectively suppress the virus. He added, every one of us has a critical role to play in this national mission, be it as parents, carers, teachers or other essential parts of the school workforce. If we find ourselves in a situation where we are not able to effectively suppress the virus, then the opening of schools is called into question. We are working very, very hard on all fronts to suppress the virus and to make sure we have all of the preparations in place for the restart of schools in August. Urging the public to try to prevent the spread of the disease, he added, I'm one of the strongest advocates of the importance of reopening of schools. Reopening of schools will be good for the well-being, for the educational opportunity and for the support for young people within our society. It's critical that we get schools open at the earliest possible opportunity, but it has to be done safely. This article is by David Ball. You're listening to The Health Scotland, recorded on Thursday 23rd July 2020. A Boris year has been a very long time in politics. An opinion article by Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer. With anniversaries, it is important to get just the right gift. Do things properly, even if the recipient is not known to be a stickler for the rules. According to etiquette, paper is the present to bestow after one year. So consider this square of newspaper our gift. I'm assuming you want in on this. To Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as he marks 12 months in office. One would prefer to hand it over in person when he visits Scotland today, but his itinerary, as usual, is being kept under wraps until the last minute. Police clearly fear a large crowd of admirers will turn up, breaking COVID-19 guidelines. It would be like Elvis when he passed through Presswick, but with a blimpish old Etonian in place of a rock and roll prince. Can it really be a year since Mr Johnson stood in a sun-dappled Downing Street and, with a mob of bellowing well-wishers outside the gates, promised to confound the doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters? Who said he would not get Brexit done? He also promised to make the streets safer, ensure no one had to wait weeks to see a GP and tackle the crisis in social care. Never mind the backstop, said the new Prime Minister using the jargon of the time. The buck stops here. He certainly tried to fulfil many of these pledges, albeit in unconventional ways. The streets were safer because they were empty. No one could see a GP because surgeries were closed. And as for social care, it had a whole other crisis to worry about. The story of Mr Johnson's first year in power is inescapably the story of COVID-19. Everything else is secondary, even Brexit, crucial as its success or otherwise is to the future of the country. 
Any judgment on his first year in office is necessarily a verdict on how he dealt with the virus crisis. Though Mr Johnson would prefer to wait for the official inquiry, public opinion is way ahead of him. In a poll last week for The Sun on Sunday, 43% of respondents thought he was doing well in his job, compared to 66% for Chancellor Rishi Sunak and 48% for the newly installed Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer. The new Commons double act of Johnson and Starmer was in action again yesterday at the PMQs before the summer recess. These contests are settled down to a familiar routine in which Prime Ministerial bluster meets lawly formality. Neither man will be truly tested until the Commons, like everything else, is back to normal, or the new normal whatever or whenever that may be. If there is one word which sums up Mr Johnson's response to the crisis, it is slow. Slow to impose a lockdown. Slow to build up testing capacity. Slow in making sure there was enough personal protective equipment for the frontline staff who needed it desperately. Slow to pick up on the crisis in care homes. Since the PM, like the rest of us, was new to the crisis, he was given an enormous amount of leeway. Normal business from opposition parties was suspended. The media were on side. He had been an unlucky Premier, dreadfully so. But what was political ill fortune when so many people were losing loved ones? Then he fell ill, eventually ending up in intensive care. The shock and the get well soon messages were genuine. Whatever goodwill he built up was soon squandered by his refusal to sack his chief aide, Dominic Cummings, for driving to Durham and beyond during lockdown. He failed that test of leadership, just as First Minister Nicola Sturgeon neglected to show the door immediately to her chief medical officer, Catherine Calderwood, on learning of her double lockdown breach. On his way into number 10, Mr Johnson said politicians should never forget that the people are the bosses. Well, the people wanted Mr Cummings gone, yet he remains. As for the rest of Mr Johnson's first year, it was a mixed bag. The proroguing of Parliament and the subsequent defeat in the Supreme Court would be a stain on any PM's reputation. The general election that followed was a triumph for the party with hitherto Labour seats falling to the Conservatives. How much that was due to voters' impatience over Brexit, and how much to then Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn's general uselessness, depends on the observer. Then we come to Scotland, which stands in the same place it did when Mr Johnson became Prime Minister, stuck in the middle between the status quo and independence. Scotland has not appeared to figure much in the PM's calculations this past year, though he has had other things on his mind. This is about to change, we are told, hence his visit to Scotland today. Thereafter, Scotland is to be love-bombed by Downing Street, with ministers encouraged to follow the PM North to talk up the benefits of the Union, particularly in the current crisis. This, Mr Johnson believes, will tackle increasing support for independence in the polls and drive it downwards, just in time for the next Scottish Parliament elections. That's the theory in any case. 
the reality may be very different. Telling Scotland how much better off it is in the Union by talking up how much money has flowed from Westminster suggests those billions are in the forms of grants and do not have to be repaid. In fact, Scottish taxpayers, in common with taxpayers in the rest of the UK, will be the ones eventually paying the bills Mr Johnson is running up. To adapt a phrase from a former Chancellor, we are all in this mess together. Mention of George Osborne brings us to the reason Mr Johnson will get in and out of Scotland today as if his trousers were on fire. When it comes to the Conservatives, Scotland's memory goes back much further than a year. In the manner of Back to the Future, shall we turn the clock 10 years to the Coalition Government and the start of austerity? Or 40 plus years to Mrs Thatcher and all that came after? Earlier? Scotland's problem with the Conservatives has nothing to do with not understanding them. It is that we understand them only too well. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Thursday the 23rd of July 2020. Opinion by Mark Eady The digital age no match for the tracks of my years. It's the start of another day in lockdown land. You log on to your hastily assembled workstation in the office, previously known as the spare room, kitchen table or shed, and decide to listen to a little soothing background music. So what will it be? The radio, CD, vinyl record, or stream some music online? The answer is obvious. It has to be the latter, doesn't it? With just a simple click of the mouse or a tap of the screen, you have all the music you could ever wish for. From the rise of Iggy to the fall of Ziggy, the Delta Blues to Delius, the millions of songs streaming offers is mind-boggling. But there's a problem. What song, artist, album, playlist or genre do you listen to? And here lies the rub. As the title of US psychologist Barry Schwartz's 2004 book, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, suggests, too much choice is a bad thing. It seems counterintuitive, but to grossly simplify Schwartz's argument, he found that by eliminating consumer choice, shoppers suffered far less anxiety. Panic sets in, you can't decide, so you play it safe, pick your usual and avoid experimentation. I admit I can be a tad snobbish in my musical tastes at times, but I can't help but feel the instant gratification offered by the digital age has diluted music so much that it's become nothing more important in people's lives than a piece of furniture. Music no longer matters while there is a danger of drowning in a sea of mediocrity. At the risk of sounding like a Hobus commercial, my formative years were joyfully spent saving up my paper round money, going to our price on the high street, and buying the record I had either heard on the radio, seen on top of the pops, or read about in the NME. Time, money and effort were all invested in my choice. In fact, psychologists recognise that we value an item more if we own it, a phenomenon known as the endowment effect. This would explain why I refused to give up on a record if, after initial listening, I felt a little let down. I'd spent £9.99 on it after all. 
unlike flitting from song to song on iTunes, the physical record requires more input and your attention. Your ever-expanding collection, even the duds that lurk in the shadows, is a small part of your identity. A little moment frozen in time, reminding you of the friends you had, who you were seeing back then, or the job you did when you handed over your hard-earned cash that day. Let's face it, if you don't work hard for something, you won't love it. And besides, it takes years to form a decent record collection. Streaming is just cheating. This article was by Mark Eady. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 23rd of July 2020. TV preview. The wait for season 3 of The Young Offenders is over by Herald Magazine. If you're a fan of The Young Offenders, brackets, and you should be because it's hilarious, close brackets, you won't be surprised to hear star Alex Murphy doesn't get embarrassed on set anymore. I feel I can do anything in front of the crew, which we have. There's not much of me that the crew hasn't seen, quips the court-born star 22. In the BBC comedy, Murphy plays Connor McSweeney, who's best friends with Jack O'Keefe, played by fellow Kirkconi and Chris Wally, 25. Over the past two series, spin-offs from the 2016 film of the same name, we have followed their two lovable rogues as they get themselves into all sorts of sticky situations. Particularly memorable storylines include the teenager's attempt to steal a giant tuna fish from the market in series one, and when they get expelled after stripping off in the classroom and peeing in Principal Walsh's leg in series two, now we're getting a series three, in which we see the lads trying to make their way as young adults, with yet more questionable methods of making some money, all while Jock navigates being a new dad. One thing's for sure, things won't go smoothly. Here we chat to Wally and Murphy, plus Hilary Rose, who plays Connor's stressed out but loving mum, Myred, to find out more. New chapter. It's an unconventional family setup in The Young Offenders, which is set and filmed in Cork. A heartwarming episode in series one saw widower Myred, brackets, whose husband was killed in an accident in a building site, close brackets, become a foster mum to Jock, whose mum was also dead after he escapes his abusive alcoholic dad. At the end of series two, Jock's girlfriend Siobhan, whose dad happens to be Principal Walsh, who is far from the biggest fan of Jock and Connor, gave birth to Baby Star, brackets, cue some emotional scenes, close brackets. The new addition to the family means Principal Walsh and his wife Orla, whose other daughter Linda is going out with Connor, now have to engage more with Myred, which hasn't always gone well in the past. Season 3 was interesting from a character point of view because Myred really cuts loose and at some stages the lads are telling her to calm down, follows Rose, who's also from Cork and married Peter Foote, who created The Young Offenders since 2010. As for the love story between her and Sergeant Healy, she teases, Series 3 kinda continues that, on again, off again, will they, won't they vibe. The main storyline for series 2 is how Jock is adjusting to everyday life with Baby Star. Connor and Jock are still getting into their sticky situations but now there's just a baby there as well, reveals Wally. I think it's just a major shift in their lives and they're just trying to figure it all out together. Parenting Lessons Twins Noah and Penny Richardson shared the role of Star and Wally says the babies were incredible. I want one, exclaims Murphy before quickly adding, not right now. Rose chimes in at this point saying she has told the boys that they're always welcome to babysit her kids. Brackets, her and Foot have Jake, who was born during filming of the big screen outing of the Young Offenders, and one-year-old Olivia. Close brackets. 
They're both amazing babysitters, but there was a time when Jake was very young when they brought him a Nerf gun, she recalls, which sets them all off laughing, with her on-screen sons looking a little sheepish. I don't know, we were buying toys and we were like, this is what kids that age like, reasons Wally. There was some force off it if you shot it, he concedes. They're heavy duty. That was a real Connor and Jock moment for the two of us, admits Murphy. Having Penny and Noah on set, this series was definitely a learning curve for the young actors. I was terrified of holding babies for fear I dropped them, confides Wally. By the end of the shoot, I was just inseparable. Memorable moments. According to Murphy, there's not a street in Cork City that we haven't filmed on. The Cork people are so proud of the show. Having crowds watching them film was something they had to get used to pretty quick. There was a great photo in the paper a few years ago of us making the film. There are about seven people in the crew, no one's watching us filming, notes Murphy. And then there was a photo of us making season one and there were just crowds of people watching. It was good. It was like doing a play every day, whenever we were filming outside in the city. One of the newest episodes sees Jock, Connor and Myra take a trip to Dublin. Whilst filming on a road in the Irish capital city, they reveal they were pulled over by Leo Varadkar's entourage as he was driving past them in an unmarked executive car. The Irish politician was Taoiseach at the time, brackets he resigned in June, close brackets. There was a camera in the back seat and we were mid-scene and we were like, what does this guy want? We're filming, says Rose. And eventually Alex put down the passenger window and was like, hey, and next thing Leo Varadkar leaning forward. His driver was like, great show, recalls Murphy. We were like, do you like it? Brackets to Varadkar, close brackets. And he went, I haven't seen it. But he did say, I've heard it's great, adds Rose. Character development. The biggest thing Rose has taken away from making the young offenders is the amazing relationships they formed with cast and crew. Brackets, indeed, it's touching to witness how close Wally and Murphy are in real life as we chat over Zoom, close brackets. It's about getting the job done and doing the best that you can, but you have to remember as well for actors we're really vulnerable in front of all the crew, so you kind of put your trust in them, she elaborates. If we're doing emotional scenes, they're witnessing it, they're trying to support you. As for future series, Murphy points out the only issue could be that he and Wally don't exactly look 16 anymore. At some points in the script, Jock will go, we can't do that, we're only 16, and we were like, can we just not mention our age? He continues chuckling. As long as we look young, I guess we'll see what happens. CGI is working pretty good these days. The Young Offenders is available on BBC iPlayer and on BBC One from Friday. Recorded from the Herald, 23rd of July 2020. Stephen Gerrard Prend of Rangers Everyone Anyone campaign after one year anniversary. Aidan Smith. Stephen Gerrard has hailed Rangers Everyone Anyone initiative as it celebrated its first anniversary yesterday. The Ibrox boss helped start the campaign, which aims to highlight messages of tolerance, respect and understanding that Rangers is a club open to all, regardless of gender, sexuality, faith, age or ethnicity. And as the club marked a year since the launch, Gerrard was quick to praise the work of those at the heart of the campaign. He said... I'm very proud, being the manager of this club, that we launched the campaign a year ago. I've seen a lot of positive work go into it. We are sending the right messages out and it's something we want to continue to do and stick together with. Educating the right people is important and I'm sitting here now and very proud of the campaign. I hope it keeps growing and the positive work continues. Football can be a force for good. Individually as footballers and coaches, we have to use our platforms to keep pushing the right messages and the right education for people. 
I know the club is very keen to do that, from top to bottom, and we all need to stick together and apply the right messages for people. Together, we are such a powerful tool. If you put all our numbers together, we can continue to do wonderful things for anyone and everyone. The Herald, Thursday the 23rd of July 2020. News. Coronavirus. Huge easing and restrictions for shielding group. This article is by Tom Gordon. Nicola Sturgeon has announced the extreme form of lockdown for those most at risk from coronavirus will be paused next week, with a raft of restrictions ending as soon as tomorrow. Shielders will be able to visit hairdressers, cinemas and outdoor pubs and restaurants from Friday. The First Minister said the 150,000 strong shielding group would no longer have to follow specific advice from August the 1st, but simply observe general rules also applying to the elderly. From Friday, shielders will be able to meet up with up to eight people from two households indoors, subject to physical distancing, and up to 15 people from four households outdoors. Shielders will also be able to use public transport, including taxis, wearing a face covering, using outdoor spaces in pubs and restaurants, and indoor shops, pharmacies and markets. The group, which includes organ transplant recipients and people on chemotherapy, can also use hairdressers and visit museums, galleries, libraries and cinemas from tomorrow. Children living with someone who is shielding can also attend formal childcare providers. Ms Sturgeon said her government was also developing a COVID forecasting service for shielders, which would use text messages to tell them about the local levels of risk. She said the service was being developed with an eye to the winter months when the virus might regain ground and said some local risk information might be made public for all. Speaking at the daily briefing, Ms Sturgeon said there had been no overnight COVID deaths, meaning only one laboratory confirmed fatality north of the border in the past 15 days. The total number of confirmed deaths remains at 2,491, although the total is 4,193 when suspected cases are included. She said it is exactly four months today since the country went into lockdown, so there is no doubt that these figures will show the incredible progress that has been made in that time. She sent a sincere and heartfelt thanks to those who were shielding. She said, that has been incredibly tough and it's easy for me to say, but the reality is I actually find it hard to fully imagine just how difficult it has been. Shielding and shielding people demonstrates perhaps more powerfully than anything else does just how all of us are dependent right now on each other's actions. The reason that we can pause shielding, hopefully at the end of next week, is because all of us has stuck to the guidance so far and all of us need to continue to do that in order that we continue collectively to protect those at risk. The First Minister announced 16 new cases of COVID-19 were confirmed in Scotland in the past day, 0.4% of those tested, taking the total to 18,500. She said provisional figures indicated four new cases are in Lanarkshire, with a number of cases linked to the Cytel call centre in Bells Hill, up from 20 to 24. Given that the virus can have a long incubation period, intensive work is still ongoing in order to ensure that all possible chains of transmission are being closed down, she said. Staff at the call centre helped to trace contacts of positive COVID-19 cases for NHS England. Despite the advances for shielders, there was no better news for home care residents. 
Scotland's Chief Nursing Officer Fiona McQueen said the one-person limit on outdoor visitors which was introduced on July the 3rd would remain in place for present. She said further work had to be completed before indoor and larger group outdoor visiting would be possible. She said, we are working with Scottish Care and with the care home sector themselves, along with other professional advisory bodies, clinicians and others, to take the next step of supporting indoor visiting by one person, but also three outdoor visitors for residents. I know that this is longed for within the care home sector. We are working hard to do that, but at the moment what we are saying is that we want time to make sure that our care home residents are safe, and therefore are continuing with our current visiting arrangements, which is one outdoor visitor per care home resident. Since the start of the outbreak, there have been 6,841 cases of suspected COVID-19. In 697, 65% adult care homes in Scotland. This article is by Tom Gordon. You're listening to the Health Scotland recorded on Friday the 24th of July 2020. Was reopening pubs and fast food outlets before gyms really a good idea? An article by Doug Marr. Family legend has it that I weighed over £10 at birth. Probably explains why I'm an only child. I was the class fatty all the way through primary school. Some would say my parents were guilty of child abuse, but nothing could be further from the truth. Having survived the hardships of the 1920s, 30s and 40s, they simply wanted to give me the things they missed out on. Unfortunately, most involved chocolate. Obesity beckoned, but I was saved by lifelong participation in exercise and sport. I was lucky. Like all overweight adults, I would have been more vulnerable to COVID-type illness and respiratory failure and type 2 diabetes to the mix and another public health emergency is in the making. The UK government has already declared a war on obesity. The Prime Minister may be more of a roly-poly model than a role model, but his press-ups regime suggests even he's got the idea. In Scotland, we seem proud to let it all hang out as we wobble down the high street. Around one third of our children are overweight or obese. 65% of adults are considered overweight, with 29% classed as obese. Time and pounds roll on together, with an astonishing 78% of those between 65 and 74 classed as overweight. Drastic action was taken to avoid overwhelming the NHS with COVID cases. Obesity threatens to do the same, swallowing up essential resources. The overweight should not be at the back of the queue for surgery, but should still be accountable for their choices and consequences. Early intervention and prevention are always better and cheaper than cure. Developing a healthy lifestyle and daily exercise should be more central to the school curriculum. Oh, how we laughed at those old newsreels of Japanese workers doing morning exercises at their desks and machines. Who's laughing now? 
when Japan has the world's healthiest elderly population. Why not incentivise Scottish employers to provide time for daily exercise in offices and factories? Through GPs, at-risk individuals can be targeted, supported and monitored. Despite the Covid track and trace fiasco, phone apps could still be useful, although electronic tagging of the overweight may be a bridge too far. Reopening pubs and fast food outlets before gyms and indoor sports facilities sent out the wrong message. Surely a workout or a game of squash in a controlled environment is less of a health risk than a burger washed down by six pints of lager. The government needs to get on message. Otherwise, a resurgence of Covid, combined with increasing levels of obesity, and the fat will well and truly be in the fire. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday the 24th of July, 2020. Opinion, by Neil Mackay, writer-at-large. Buckle up, citizens. Scottish politics is about to enter a new world of crazy. There's few rational folks in Scotland who wouldn't agree that politics here has got a little crazy over recent years. As dog days set in following the 2014 referendum, Scottish politics became more harsh, more ugly. Brutal, fringe voices started to dominate, often from online, but frequently egged on by both nationalist and unionist politicians. A nasty strain of populism appeared. Every issue became refracted through a constitutional prism. Conspiracy theories crept out from their cellars. To the detriment of the entire country, Political parties suborned bread-and-butter issues to the question of independence. Everything appeared wrapped in either a saltire or a union jack. This new normal is distinctly unappetising for many voters in Scotland today. But if you think the last few years have been crazy, you ain't seen nothing yet. This week has given a good example of just how unhinged Scottish politics is about to become. Let's take the Russia report. At heart, it shows the Tory government is utterly unfit for power. It's incapable of defending the UK. Not only that, but the party is floating in a sea of Russian rubles. Westminster has lain down and let Russian oligarchs use it as a doormat to Britain, where they can launder dirty money. Then we come to Brexit. In the report's wake, we now know the UK government actively avoided looking at any evidence that Russia interfered in the vote. That's not just gobsmacking, it's so egregious it would dislocate your entire jaw. What on earth was the report's intention if not to investigate Russian meddling over Europe? It is the Russia report after all. The giveaway is in the name. What else was it going to investigate? Putin's latest bare-chested pose for the Kremlin Christmas calendar, perhaps? The fish in my fish tank know Russia had its sticky, spooky fingers all over Brexit, particularly when it came to online manipulation and disinformation. The report shows the UK government to be a cabinet of liars, or rather idiots who are bad liars and think we're too stupid to see their lies. 
actually make that lying idiots who'd let a hostile foreign power meddle with UK democracy as long as it served its own petty party political ambitions and helped grifters and mountebanks like Boris Johnson get power. Here's where the Russia report plays into the growing craziness of Scottish politics though. The big leak to the press before the publication of the report was that Russia had interfered in the independence referendum. Forget Brexit, put the weight of the report onto Scotland, that was clearly Downing Street's strategy. Evidently, most rational and informed folk accept Russia was trying it on when it came to the 2014 referendum. Why wouldn't it be? But to focus on interference in Scotland and not look into Brexit is nothing but straight-up manipulation of intelligence and security. This all shows what way the wind is blowing. With a new Tory unit set up to fight independence, rest assured there will be more stupid dirty tricks. Only a dummy would think otherwise. That means Scottish politics is going to get weird. Downing Street isn't scared to use any cynical ploy. But the craziness isn't all on one side. Far from it. While the independence movement could easily bask in the lunacy of London, saying, quote, see, this is what we want to save you from, unquote, some elements of the nationalist fringe have decided to don a crazy suit themselves. Support for independence is now the majority position, and the SNP is storming the polls as the public responds to coronavirus. But why rest on good fortune when you could trash everything? Why not hold a rally outside Holyrood, with figures like former SNP MSP George Caravan, and tell the world that the Yes movement, quote, cannot be patient any longer, unquote. Why not have speakers say that it's time to, quote, start getting angry, unquote. That's not going to put off potential Yes voters, surely. Why not call for Union Street in Aberdeen to be renamed Independent Street? That doesn't look daft. Why not have an organiser of the Nationalist Marching Group, all under one banner, say that, quote, managing COVID should run parallel with fighting for independence, unquote. That's the same marching group where signs denouncing Tory scum unfurl at rallies, a tactic designed to win over soft unionist voters, I'm sure. Why not start talking about Scottish freedom? Free Scotland from what, actually, is my question. I support independence, and it's not because there's some colonial army of English occupation in peoples, it's because I think Scotland can do better on its own than it currently fares as part of the Westminster system. But it doesn't stop there. Why not start a new political party, and use it to drive a wedge between the independence movement? And why not have that new political party Alliance for Independence, linked to the craziest fringe of the entire Yes movement. A regional AFI organiser was behind the much-denounced protest at the border, where Yes supporters wore hazmat suits and shouted plague carriers at visitors crossing from the south. That ought to work. If there's anything likely to reach out to a hesitant voter, then this must surely be it. And just for good measure, why not throw Tommy Sheridan into the mix and make sure he's involved in this brave new political party too? Done deal. There's no way independence is going to risk any damage from that catalogue of tactical brilliance.
The bottom line is this. Boris Johnson's government is dangerous. It would trash anything and everything for the sake of one objective, raw power. So how is this dangerous government likely to treat Scotland as the independence debate intensifies in the coming months? Get ready for a dirty fight, that's all I can say. Meanwhile, in the indie corner, the wild conspiratorial base is getting out of control and risks damaging the entire Yes movement with its absurd juvenile antics. The Yes movement has to get itself in order and keep the extremists in their box. Politics cannot be a matter of crazy versus crazy. The independence movement will only win with reason, openness and persuasion. Anything else is mere posturing, designed to serve the posturer rather than the country or the ideal. This article was by Neil Mackay. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 24th of July 2020. Arts and Entertainments. This week's new albums. Boy's Life. Ellie Goulding. The Chicks. Dead. Love Fame Tragedy. By Gary Scott. Love Fame Tragedy. Wherever I go, I want to leave. The success of The Wombats meant expectations were high for the debut solo studio album of frontman Matthew Murph Murphy. Murphy's self-reflective album, Wherever I Go, I Want to Leave, meets these expectations with a hugely enjoyable and vulnerable setlist. Released under the name of his solo project, Love, Fame, Tragedy, the album is a masterclass in versatility, with falsetto, synth-pop and tender acoustic-inspired songs expertly merged. There is not a single moment where Murphy's talents fail to shine. Whether it is in the Naughties-esque Riding a Wave or the more alternative Hardcore, Later in the album, the brutally honest songs Pills and Everything Affects Me Now are a highlight with their tender and raw sounds while not being self-pitying. It does feel overlong at 17 tracks as some songs feel repetitive and drift into each other during the middle of the album. However, these dull moments are swiftly forgotten and Wherever I Go, I Want to Leave firmly earns its place in the library of any indie fan. Jess Glass Dead Flower of Devotion Chicago's Dead come roaring out of garage land with the minimum pretension and the maximum fun on new album Flower of Devotion. They keep it simple with paired back instrumentation like the White Stripes and also with a complex interband relationship that adds an edge to their songs of love, won and lost. The 13 three minute songs mostly have single word titles, Nobody, Apart, Moonlight and catchy choruses with Emily Kempf brackets bass, close brackets, and Jason Bala, brackets guitar, close brackets, trading vocals anchored by Eric McGrady's drums. Month echoes just like Honey era the Jesus and Mary chain, and letter the vaccine's wetsuit, while closing track Flying suggests a love of the Shangri-Las and the Ravionettes are another reference point with surf guitar and reverb added to the mix. Dade clearly have all the right influences, yet transcend them and come up with a fresh sound that manages to be both timeless and also entirely 2020. Matthew George The Chicks Gaslighter Gaslighter sees The Chicks return with a new name and a renewed vigour for taking on contemporary issues. 
Current band members Natalie Maines, Emily Strayer and Marty Maguire's new material seems keenly attuned to the politics of today despite their 14-year recording hiatus. As the band released protest song March March last month amid the Black Lives Matter movement, they announced they were dropping the word Dixie, which has ties to Confederacy in the US from their name. The song is the album's standout track and sees the group pair their distinctive country style with a pulsating electronic beat alongside lyrics that tackle topics including gun control, abortion rights and climate change. The band have never shied away from sparking political controversy and the rest of the album is similarly thoughtful and provocative. However, songs such as Texas Man and For Her are more in line with the band's signature relaxed melodic approach. The album sees the chicks return to their best. Tom Horton Ellie Goulding, Brightest Blue Ellie Goulding's new album is what you might call a lesson in pop perfection. It's her first album since 2015 and Brightest Blue has been worth the wait. Set in two parts, Brightest Blue and EG.0. This album is packed with exciting collaborations, brackets, Lauv, Diplo and more, close brackets. It feels like a journey through the life of the singer and you feel the progression in the lyrics as you listen. Tracks like Start feel nostalgic with a switch to power and the love I'm given, which references a sense of change being afoot. Goulding herself has said the first part of the album reflects by vulnerability. It acknowledges a complex world where relationships still dictate our happiness and heartbreak and can still be the most painful thing in the world, no matter how enlightened you are. As a musician, Goulding knows her voice and she knows how to use it. But she also has a knack for adding those smaller details, sometimes in the form of an unlikely collaboration, that really take her music to another level. Kathy Ifley Boy's Life Strings Attached Boyzone and Westlife, two of the biggest boy bands to emerge from Ireland during the 90s, both manufactured in the Louis Walsh pop factory, both charting numerous number ones. More than two decades later, after sundry lineup changes and reunions, we have this, an album from Boyzone's Keith Duffy and Westlife's Brian McFadden. Revisiting their respective triumphs is the order of the day. Strings Attached, with its half-joke of a title, features orchestral versions of nine UK number one songs from their group's respective back catalogues, accompanied by the famed Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Undeniable classics like Flying Without Wings and Unbreakable benefit from an orchestral arrangement, while songs that demand a lighter touch such as You Needed Me are swallowed by the grandiosity. Today, Duffy is 45 and McFadden 40, and their fan base has grown with them. Strings Attached is for that fan base. It's an unashamed nostalgia trip that adds little but a dusting of contemporary lits. Alex Green by Barry Scott Recorded from the Herald, 24th of July 2020. Scottish football set for five substitutions as SPFL announced new rule. James Kearney Scottish football teams will be allowed to make five substitutions per game in this season's Challenge Cup and Betfred Cup competitions. The rule has already been implemented widely throughout European football in response to the coronavirus pandemic, with fears that players could suffer injuries as a result of a congested fixtures list. The new law is yet to be formally adopted by any of the SPFL's four professional leagues, but in a statement released by the governing body, the organisation revealed they have recommended that the Premiership brings in the change. In order for the rule to be successfully implemented, 
nine of the 12 top flight teams in Scotland would have to vote in the favour of the move. The statement added that the proposal will be put to the Premiership clubs initially as the competition is set to start next month, while Championship, League 1 and League 2 clubs will be asked to vote on the same option in due course. Neil Doncaster, Chief Executive of the SPFL, said, With a more compressed fixture calendar than we are used to, the board approved the use of five substitutes in our competitions, primarily out of a concern for player welfare. With teams expected to play more frequently and with shorter periods for recovery, the use of additional players in matches will help clubs spread the load throughout the season. It is also hoped that this amendment will assist player development, allowing more younger players to get experience of competitive senior football during the 2020-2021 season. The proposal will now go to Premiership clubs to vote on. A resolution to this effect will be circulated to the Scottish Premiership clubs shortly. You're listening to The Herald Scotland as published on Friday the 24th of July 2020. Business. David Lonsdale. Without a plan for the safe return of office workers, tourists and students, the short term looks bleak. I'm regularly asked if the havoc wrought by coronavirus signifies the end of high street retail. I don't believe it does, as our town and city centres and high streets still have a great deal to offer, but they certainly do need to change. Their strengths, as hubs for jobs, entertainment and for living, remain, but that's tricky in the short term due to coronavirus and social distancing. Our towns and cities also account for a large slice of the £24 billion annual turnover of Scottish retail. The pressures brought by the pandemic are accelerating, rather than revolutionising, changes within retail. The pace may be increasing, but the direction of travel has been clear for some time. Last month, the proportion of non-food retail sales bought online rather than in-store leapt to 51%. The year before, it was 33%. That's a significant jump. It has eased down a touch since April and May, but if sustained, has implications for Scotland's 22,000 stores and 232,000 retail jobs. Online has provided a lifeline for many retailers, allowing them to generate some revenue during a barren period. It has also provided them with a fresh opportunity to sustain relationships with customers. This is one of the wider and continuing trends within the industry, driven by shifting shopping habits, technology, weak consumer demand and rising costs. The number of shops in Scotland has fallen 8% over the past decade and the vacancy rate stood at 13% prior to coronavirus. Retail job numbers have similarly shrunk, although retail remains Scotland's largest private sector employer. These changes will have profound implications for retail destinations, especially in less affluent areas, for employment prospects in communities more reliant on retail jobs and for the revenues from taxes that public services rely on. It will impact the delicate economic ecosystem that retail, hospitality and other high street firms find mutually reinforcing. It will mean an uncomfortable period ahead for some. Not every shop will be financially viable. Further store closures are inevitable, but the scale is not. This is the debate that policymakers must now engage with. It is timely as parliamentary inquiries look at coronavirus and the recovery, and with the Chancellor and First Minister turning their attention to spending and legislative plans for the year ahead. 
The Scottish Government's creation of a Town Centres Action Group in recent weeks is encouraging, albeit the involvement of the private sector seems sparse. Hopefully, the group will encourage a more coherent public policy approach, resuscitate the Town Centre Fund and make it easier to attract footfall. Government also needs to think more broadly about reigniting consumer confidence and enticing people back into our city centres. City centre retail and hospitality are currently reporting huge drops in footfall. Premises in those areas already have higher occupancy costs. Without a plan for the safe return of office workers, tourists and students, the short term looks bleak. Government support for industry during the current crisis has been significant and rapid, but with business revenues falling short, more support is required on the rent burden which has been accumulating and on business rates so that next spring's reverse cliff edge, the reinstatement of 100% business rates, is avoided. Scotland's high streets will look different as we emerge from this crisis. Thousands of shops and tens of thousands of retail jobs depend on the ongoing patronage of the Scottish public. Early indications suggest any retail revival may be gradual. The extent to which retail remains the cornerstone of every high street will also depend on the decisions made by parliaments and governments. David Lonsdale is Director of the Scottish Retail Consortium. You've been listening to David Lonsdale without a plan for the safe return of office workers, tourists and students. The short term looks bleak. The Herald, Friday the 24th of July 2020, News. Fire crews tackle blaze in Glasgow's Drum Chapel, Dalsetter Drive. This article is by L. Duffy. Fire crews have been battling a large blaze in Glasgow overnight. Crews were at the scene in Drum Chapel's Dalsetter Drive just after midnight on Thursday, where a pile of tyres is thought to have caught fire. Residents in the area have been asked by police to keep their windows shut due to the large amount of smoke coming from the blaze. Drumchapel Community Council updated locals and urged people to avoid the scene. They wrote, This does not just put our emergency services at risk, but also the grounds and buildings around it. Please stay safe and avoid the area if possible. Police Scotland and Scottish Fire and Rescue Service are on the scene at present. Police say no residential properties are at risk and have now advised of any injuries. They said the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service are dealing with a large fire in the area of Dalsetter Drive, Glasgow. No residential properties are at risk. There is a large amount of smoke being produced as a result and they are advising local residents to keep their doors and windows closed. The Scottish Fire and Rescue Service has been approached for comment. This article is by L. Duffy. And that was this week's Herald. Thank you for listening.